the microbiome, a healthy microbiome, effectively underpins overall health in the animal. And that is because um, the microbiome interacts with um, or is part of uh, the immune system in the gut and they also are responsible for um, metabolizing um, or fermenting uh, various nutrients and prov- uh, providing um, metabolites that the, the gut um, and the animal itself can use for um, energy and other other um, uh, processes. So they're, they're pivotal to our health. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Chemin Nutrisurance is your pet food and rendering partner every step of the way. Trow Nutrition, the science of ingredients, nutrition, and blending. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. ProAmpac, your companion in pet packaging. Visit pets.proampac.com to explore our innovative, sustainable solutions, such as our QuadFlex recyclable flat bottom bags, ProDura poly woven bags, ProEvo recyclable paper bags with grease resistance, and our proactive recyclable film and pouches that run at optimum speeds on your filling equipment. Elevate your wet food, treats, and kibble brand by utilizing packaging that safeguards and preserves product freshness. Trust ProAmpac for packaging that cares for your pets and the planet. Pets.ProAmpac.com Hello and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where our goal is to share research findings to help support the continual innovation in the pet food and nutrition industry. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Shoveler, and I'm here today with today's guest, Dr. Emma Birmingham, to discuss with us about how diet affects the microbiota and how the microbiota um, ladders to health. Thank you for being with us today, Emma. Thanks for having me, Kate. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Um, as maybe a point of introduction, I just wanted to introduce uh, Emma and her experience. Uh, Dr. Birmingham has more than 15 years of experience in the pet food industry. After a postdoctoral position at the Waltham Center of Pet Nutrition in the United Kingdom, she established a research platform at Ag Research Limited in New Zealand that focused on the impacts of high-protein diets on gut health in both the dog and the cat. During this time, as well as conducting fundamental research, Emma consulted for pet food companies in New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Additional research focus areas at Ag Research include energy requirements of pets, which, by the way, Emma, is a very big focus on my energy section in my pet nutrition course. Excellent. Excellent. The role of the microbiome in pet health the impact of age and diet on cat nutrition, and how animal-derived ingredients could provide nutritional functionality in both dogs and cats. 
In 2022, Emma left ag research and went to work for industry. Welcome, Emma, and I'm very excited about today's conversation. Thank you, Kate. So am I. I love talking about cats and dogs. I just love talking about biology in general and how we we need anything. It's so complex that people really don't appreciate that it takes an entire village. and, And you've provided a tremendous amount of data, fundamental data in pet nutrition to help guide the industry. So first and foremost, I compliment you on um, the vast amount of contribution you've done there. So let's talk to the pet food industry about maybe how they can use your data even better. So I thought we'd start just basically, if you would not mind describing why it's important to do microbiome research in both the dog and the cat. It's a very good question. Uh, so we know from um, data in humans and uh, models of human nutrition, so rodents, pigs, etc., that the microbiome, a healthy microbiome, effectively underpins overall health in the animal. And that is because... Um, the microbiome interacts with um, or is part of uh, the immune system in the gut and they also are responsible for um, metabolizing um, or fermenting uh, various nutrients and prov- uh, providing um, metabolites that the, the gut um, and the animal itself can use for um, energy and other other. Um, uh, processes. So they're, they're pivotal to our health. Um, the microbiome obviously um, uh, exists in many places other than just the gut. We've got a skin microbiome, we've got an ear microbiome, those sorts of things. But our focus um, has really been around how does diet and diet nutrients impact the microbiome and then have a further impact um, or potential impact on, on host health, so the dog and the cat. Fantastic. Um, So maybe to frame up a little bit more too, um, let's talk about first differences in the microbiome between cats and dogs. Are they the same? Are they different? How do pet food companies think about supplying those microbiomes differently if you can pluralize microbiome? Okay. Um, So we'll take take a step back. So I guess... If you look at the pet food industry, there's been a real heavy focus on the dog. Dog is the, the, the largest market um, and therefore a lot of the research that has been done um, in, in the pet and pet nutrition has focused on the dog. Um, cats have basically been forgotten. Um, I'm team cat, so if I have a choice, I'll go the cat because they're awesome little creatures. Um, and um, I guess... In, in a lot of ways, um, you know, it has been assumed that cats are basically little dogs, um, but they're not. Um, it's quite difficult to compare directly because cats and dogs actually have quite different nutritional requirements. So if you're trying to understand how a cat and a dog will respond to a nutrient, um, you've got the, 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 the complexity, you need to be feeding it a complete and balanced diet. And actually some of those uh, proteins, fats and micronutrients actually differ um, between the cat and dog. 
Um, some work that we've done managed to do through um, government funding um, when I was at Ag Research um, and also we had the support of the New Zealand pet food industry. We had an opportunity to look at um, very similar diet formats where we had effectively um, dogs on a high-protein raw um, meat diet and cats on the same raw meat diet and the only difference between the two groups was the um, mineral premix. So there are some differences there. We can't get around that without kind of um, causing uh, ethical concern. Um, and what we found was that um, what we're discovering, um, because we're actually diving really deeply into that data, is that um, the microbiome between the cat and the dog on similar diets is actually quite similar. Um, and so we're trying to understand what um, what genre, what families of bacteria are are, look, are producing butyrate and propionate. That's a that's a, um, a place we've started to focus purely because of the um, the health benefits of butyrate and propionate for the for the animal generally. Um, and yeah, so we're taking a real deep dive into the the function of the microbiome, trying to understand um, you know do the dog and the cat uh, respond the same or are they different? And actually, they're quite similar, but there are some quite um, uh, key differences which we're starting to tease out now so I can't give a lot of detail around that but yeah the the, the notion that cats are small dogs is certainly not true um, and so therefore uh, research going forward um, the cat needs to be the cat and the dog needs to be the the, um, the dog. There was a nice wee, um, wee quote that I like to use um, and it's only people who love cats that focus on uh, feline nutrition but hopefully um, the, the the pet food industry in the future will start to kind of realise that cats are actually important to and need to be researched in their own capacity. So, Well, and, and maybe, I mean, not the topic for today, but um, I think the last demographic uh, information I saw is that younger generation, whatever whatever we call Gen the generation millennials this, or <laughs> yeah, I think the, the generation after millennials now are they Gen Z, I think. Um, but you're starting to see actually a migration towards cat ownership. Yeah, that's and right. Yeah. Dogs. So if we were to, I, I too am a cat lover um, and I agree there's such interesting animals from birth uh, through their life just so unique um, but the pet food industry needs to start generating this data at this point because the demographics are changing and if they want to make sure that they feed or that they formulate and market foods that allow cats to thrive we need a lot more data yeah, um, yeah. there's, there's hardly any so little little plug for research there on the side, but stepping back uh, to your last comment. So um, I, I want to maybe ask then, so the microbiome is largely defined on what a mammal, and I'm just going to put mammals together in a bracket on what they eat um, and maybe a, a little less so um, based on species differences. Is that correct holistically? Yes, I think so. I, I, 
So my my journey into the microbiome started um, in 2013 where I was very lucky to come and uh, go to Illinois and work with um, Kelly Swanson um, and his lab um, there to start kind of understanding the kind of dietary impacts on the microbiome. Um, I'd, I'd received some funding and it, it was good, but it wasn't a lot. So we'd had to settle on feeding uh, commercially um, available diets. So we had a kibble and we had a, a canned or a retorted um, diet. And so we were seeing um, differences because basically dietary nutrients will drive the, um, the profile of the microbiome. But when it came to kind of really understanding um, what those differences mean, we kind of kept hitting this wall of um, increased uh, prote- high, well, high protein diets increase the level of bacteria that can utilize protein. However, when you look at the literature, um, these high protein um, utilizing bacteria are typically associated with disease in human models. So in, in unhealthy humans, gut also unhealthy gut. Um, you know, you have blood mucus entering the intestine. Those are proteinaceous. Uh, so you get um, the microbiome, um, uh, you know, the, the protein utilizers increase. And therefore, there's this uh, correlation um, that high protein diets are associated with negative bacteria in, um, well, in the disease. Obviously, causation, correlation, we'll, we can leave park that for another day. Um, and so when we were trying to understand our results, um, it was, you know, high protein diets equals so-called bad bacteria. And from a um, from an evolutionary point of view, this didn't really make sense to me. Like it's like, why would a carnivore who's um, evolved to consume high protein, high fat, um, well, sometimes low fat, depending on where seasonal you know, the season was, certainly high protein. And how could that be negative to to their health? Um, we can park the carnivals in the wild, uh, don't live that long. We'll just park that for the time being. But, um, yeah, so it kind of it set me on a journey to really understand the carnivore microbiome and, um, and, you know, what it actually meant. So I've spent a lot of time... Um, supported by uh, industry who uh, in New Zealand is, um, is high protein and um, low processed type type uh, diets to really understand the, um, you know, if we see these changes in the microbiome, what do they actually mean? And so, um, yeah, so I guess trying to take a few different approaches to really understand the, the, the dog as a dog and the cat as a cat, because I don't, Sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're not, but let's consider them separately. And they're certainly not humans and they're definitely not rodents and not pigs. And so, yeah, really trying to understand, um, I guess, that whole carnival context overlaid into the microbiome. Yeah. So, so yeah, the diet, the diet will push changes in the microbiome, but the products of fermentation that the microbiome produce do not have the same effects across all species that's because correct, part of yeah. it yeah. is predicated on their evolutionary diet. And, and yes, that's right, yeah. That must mean that there's different responses uh, to those. So the other component, that's, it's very interesting, the other component to this that um, that 
pet food companies probably need to think about. And um, my students ask me this all the time as we try to decide based on life stage Mm -hmm. what markers of health are because, you know, and I'll often uh, juxtaposition my students to me and remind them that they're 30 years younger than me. And so (laughs) the idea of um, what will affect their health acutely is far different than what will affect my health acutely. I seem to be much more sensitive um, now than I was when I was 21, (laughs) as an example. So when we think about (laughs) that age and that lifestyle component, and we think about birth of dogs and cats to um, end of life, how does the microbiome then, when we think about a healthy microbiome, is it universally the same or do we have to consider development, maintenance, and then probably age-related changes to that? What do we know about that in dogs and cats? Yes, yeah, so certainly um, there the ability to um, the study the microbiome in terms of that from birth right through to um, old age is is quite limited in um, in a research context, um, and that's simply because you know research colonies tend to have a um, um, a stage at which uh, the animals might be rehomed, for example. Um, at, Massey University, so I've done a lot of work with um, Dave Thomas and his cat colony, um, and we have looked at, um, we, we started with this sort of idea of epigenetic regulation of um, of, of, of the, the cat, effectively, looking at two different diets, the, 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 the kibble and the, the, the retorted diet. Um, we fed those to mums, um, you know, pre-pregnancy, uh, pregnancy, lactation, and then we followed those kittens uh, right through to, I think, uh, the last samples we got off them were about 12 years of age, um, which is, and now those cats have been retired um, and they're living out their, um, their, their, their lives um, in the retirement pens at Massey University. And basically what we see is that there's, um, uh, so so the, the strength in this is you can follow the same cat through its life, sti- life cycle. Um, you don't have that kind of individual variation um, that you need to consider if, you, if you're looking at discrete age groups. Um, and what we see is that um, the microbiome um, of the, the young growing animal is, is quite volatile. It shifts around quite a lot from sort of birth through weaning to about one year of age. And then after that, it's relatively stable. Um, you do see minor shifts. Um, and so I guess from a, from a research perspective, it's understanding what those minor shifts um, could mean. Um, we've just um, completed a study where we've uh, retrospectively gone back and um, so, so Dave Thomas at the colony has been taking plasma and fecal samples um, of his cats for the last 10, 11 years, and now we're um, retrospectively going through and assessing changes in the microbiome composition, changes in its function using um, shotgun sequencing, and then overlaying that with um, changes in the lipidome, which is the, the lipid metabolites in plasma 
um, and uh, lipid metabolites in feces to try and understand if we can see um, shifts with age and then understand what those shifts might mean. Ultimately, um, you know, it would be great if we saw shifts that could be improved by diet and therefore we improve the, um, the health of the of the ageing cat. So that's uh, a piece of research that we're sort of ticking away with now. Um, in terms of the results, we certainly, we do see some, we see shifts in the microbiome and we see shifts in the, um, with, associated with age and we see shifts in um, the function of the microbiome associated with age. Um, but what's really interesting is that those shifts are greater in different diets. So the, the cats fed the um, retorted diet are, um, you do see an age effect, but it's quite quite small, whereas cats fed um, a kibble diet, there's quite a large variation in, in, um, in those age effects. It's a little bit hard to explain without a, without a PowerPoint. Um, could be the commercial diets and, um, you know, there are uh, macronutrient composition is relatively consistent across the, the lifespan, but there will be differences in specific ingredients and um, potentially uh, associated with that differences in some of the, the more micro nutrition, micro, um, uh, um, what's the word, micro nutrients? Nutrients, yep. <laughs> so there might be changes in the micronutrient status, of course. Um, but it's certainly interesting um, and, um, you know, one of the, the challenges we have when we're working in um, a research context, you know, you have colony, an colony animals, limited number of animals, um, but there was a nice paper put out by uh, Karina Salt and her colleagues um, that, ex uh, that accessed or utilised um, uh, data from one of the band Banfield Veterinary Hospital, I believe, um, where she's gone through and she's used um, big data tools, so, you know, really good bioinformatics and things like that to understand those shifts in ages, uh, that, that shift in um, health as the animal ages. So I think, um, you know, going forward, we've got this, this ability to look at big data and what those trends are saying and then answer some of those questions using discrete research experiments but certainly her data um, suggests that about eight years of age uh, there's a shift in, in sort of health status in the cat and our data shows that you see changes in mac um, macronutrient digestibility and changes in the microbiome, um, changes in the lipidome and the metabolome at about that same age. So there's something happening at around eight years of age which appears to be um, that um, I guess that, that switch from healthy adult to perhaps unhealthy elderly or more senior animal. Right. So what we're really talking about is something related to the, physio the physiological aging process and when that aging process starts to impact the animal's ability um, to, I'm just going to use process the diet um, yes, as a yep. kind of large catchphrase. Yes. Um, one, one question uh, that's fairly relevant to the industry is that you mentioned that there's a lot more diversity, um, or sorry, there's a lot more change in, um, in the animals that are fed the extruded. And I was um, mainly wondering, because 
it's come up recently um, in a few other podcasts and in conversations, the, the fact that crude fiber and as we move away from crude fiber um, being the reportable and towards TDF, TDF also includes resistant starch. Mm-hmm. And if companies aren't measuring starch cook, as an example, are, are we potentially talking about how TDF has been, sw- it likely has been swinging and uh, far more variable in extruded diets? Um, and I don't know enough about cooking, but is retorting a lot more um, consistent in its cooking process than extrusion would be, as an example, and I don't know that. Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, Certainly, um, consistency with how we measure things is always important when you're trying to understand long-term consequences of anything. Um, With retorting, um, the so the, the the big difference between retorting and extruding, um, and I don't come from a um, food production background, so it's it's quite high level here. Uh, the retorting process, you don't need um, carbohydrate, so you don't need that um, that um, gellingness that happens. So canned diets, retorted diets, tend to have. Uh, fairly minimal carbohydrate. What's in there tends to be um, sort of gels, etc., to kind of create the gravies. Um, and um, whereas your extruded diets, you have upwards to you know almost 25, uh, 50% in some cases, um, are starch sources because they need that start start. They need that starch to um, physically extrude the, the, the kibble. So. Um, yeah, that, that's why it's you know, we we can't compare. It, we can't compare really the tricky. There's yeah. far more carbohydrate yeah. in the street. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Very yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. Um. So another question I have for you, based on that comparison, is: Does water intake affect the microbiome? I read that somewhere. Um. You would. Assume yes. So certainly, if you're constipated, um, which is you know your um, your bowels aren't moving, the stools are getting firmer and firmer, therefore drier. Um, um, and there are certainly some uh, shifts in the microbiome associated with that state. Um, I would assume that there would be shifts. The um, haven't studied it directly. Um, but I would assume that there would be some sort of shift there. Um, and um, would it would it have a direct effect? Um, I'm not sure. That's a good question. Um, but certainly, certainly, um, if you've got um, uh, if, if effectively you've got a, a firmer stool which is taking longer to pass versus a more um, softer stool. Oh, I love talking about poo. It's only eight thirty in the morning, and I'm getting to do it. Um, <laughs> and you know, there, there will be there will be shifts there. So it's a, it's a good question. Um, not something I've, I've I've seen any results on, but it would certainly be um, a good question from a um, probably more from a constipation point of view than a, a nutritional point of view. Yeah, I think we uh, sometimes we don't focus enough on on water either, despite the fact that that's if you have a deficiency in water, that'll kill you quick. Everything else is a little bit 
not a little bit. Everything else is a lot longer um, to show up. So it's an interesting um, paradigm. Okay, so kind of coming back a little bit more um, and, and, and um, the dog, the cat. So we've talked about life stage differences. Now, one thing that maybe pet food companies uh, may or may not need to know, I always say they need to know almost everything that we talk about on, on this podcast. But <laughs> when we think about shifts in microbiome, is it related and so we're just going to talk about poo more here, uh, Emma. Will there be a noticeable sign when you're picking up poo if you own a dog or you're scooping out the litter box if you own cat? How far does that shift have to go before the owner notices? So I don't think we know enough about the microbiome personally. Um, I think we as scientists, for a variety of reasons, um, are very superficial in our uh, interpretation of what's actually going on. So we tend to um, uh, feed diets and we see shifts and we report on those shifts, um, but we don't actually know what they mean. We've really got no idea. Um, so I'm going to... You know, that, that, that to me is my uh, frustration um, because we're sort of, we're, we're doing a lot of work, we're co- collecting a load of data, um, but we're not really interpreting it with any um, depth. And so, um, so, the, so the answer is, I don't know, because we don't even know really what the microbiome of the cat and dog um, what shifts are, are appropriate or what they mean for the, the health of the animal. If if we look at sort of, I guess, a, a disease state um, and the, the work that's being done out of Texas AMU is, is you know, gold standard here, um, you know, we know that dogs with uh, and cats with um, uh, IBS, irritable bowel or, or something like that, um, they have quite a different... Uh, microbiome um, and there appears to be some sort of dysbiosis where there's overrepresentation of specific groups. Um, those dogs and cats also have very uh, uh, um, runny poo or poten- potentially kind of, it, 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 there's a lot of variation. Sometimes it's okay and sometimes it's not. Um, certainly the microbiome has the ability to impact the, um, the smell um, of the of the um, the feces and um, and that's through the breakdown of proteins um, usually um, that are associated with those sort of more odorous compounds. Um, again, when we um, when we look at changes of diets and we assess um, you know spermidines and indoles and, and um, uh, things like that in the feces, we report a um, statist- a statistical change, but we don't actually know if there's a biological significance to that. So we don't we don't do sniff tests. I did actually um, approach, a, a, um, or a, you know, postulate this to the meto- met- met- uh, postulate an approach to the metabolic metabolomics lab. We had an ag research about how could we assess smell, and he said. Um, 
the scientist there was, um, you can do it because, you know, it's been done for things like uh, wine and cheese and butter. But if you want to understand, biolog- uh, you know, n- numerical shifts and how that affects, basically someone's going to have to sit there with a canister of poo and smell it and tell you. <laughs> and, um, and it was like, oh, I don't know if I, I would even do that to a PhD student. Um, so, yeah, so, um, so the so – the, the short answer um, is that I don't think we know enough, um, but certainly there's a load of anecdotal evidence that suggests um, the less processed your diet, the um, the firmer it is, the easier it is to pick up, um, and the less smell it has. Um, that's largely anecdotal, and um, we don't know if that's due to the microbiome itself or um, the fact that these uh, minimally processed diets tend to be um, high, more highly digestible and so there's actually less fecal bulk there. So it's, um, it's a, again, a question where I think we just don't have enough information. And given there's a lot of, um, a lot of marketing around um, my diets, you know, do this, my diets do that because we've seen shifts in microbiome. I, I think we're doing ourselves a bit of a disservice. We need to really be understanding what those shifts mean. So, yeah. Yeah, no, great, great guidance for, and and you're right, a lot of the time we run with something new in science and part of that's yeah. because you start using new sexy words in your grants and yeah. you're, you're going pursuing certain amounts of certain kinds of funding or it becomes the hot topic in the industry and everybody yeah. is pursuing gut health right now. Exactly, as, as yeah. So yeah. It, it's part yeah. of that. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, cause you've alluded to this um, and I thought maybe you could describe it a little bit better, um, how the digestibility of both um, the available or enzymatically digestible carbohydrate fat fraction and the protein fraction might impact what is flowing into the colon of both the dog and the cat. And um, if you could maybe for for um, everyone online to describe when a total tract digestibility makes sense and when it doesn't with regard to these two. Okay, you're really diving into my <laughs> undergrad knowledge here. Um, so... So in reality, uh, total t- digestibility is basically looking at what you feed uh, feed to the the animal and what you collect in the poo, and uh, that's our reality. It's very, um, you know, it's it's low invasive, um, and easy to collect. When you look at total tract digestibility, however, what you're not considering is the um, the protein. Uh, contribution from the microbiome and from the the cell, the, the intestinal cells, which slough into the um into the, the total tract, uh, into the digestive tract um, during the the process of digestion. Um, so there's uh, I guess a methodol- methodological limitation, but it's our reality because the the alternative is you need to um, somehow obtain samples from the ileum. Um, and other parts of the digestive tract which um, are, are highly invasive and things we don't actually want to be doing. Um, in terms of uh, looking at high carbohydrate um, or high protein, obviously if you've got lots of um, carbohydrate going into your diet, 
uh, when that reaches, uh, gets pro- uh, digested through the stomach and reaches the small and then ultimately the large intestine where it's fermented by the microbiome, you're going to have a lot more carbohydrate or um, um, yeah, a lot more kind of carbohydrate type um, molecules available to the, the microbiome there. Um, from the point um, of view of, I guess, more omnivorous animals or herbivorous animals like um, so humans and, and cows and um, those sorts of things, those carbohydrates are fermented into um, uh, short-chain fatty acids. It's a bit of a, um, a process going on which are then absorbed by the host. In terms of um, high-protein diets, um, you get obviously the same thing sort of happens and you get a, an accumulation of, I guess, more proteinaceous um, uh, substrates available to the to the microbiome to ferment. So um, when you look at the, the, constant, the relative concentrations of short-chain fatty acids in a, in a carnivore versus a, a human, um, there's a lot less butyrate. Um, however, and so the, the assumption you know, or has been for, for a long time is that high protein diets decrease butyrate because, uh, and therefore are bad, the, um, are, are not good, not necessarily bad, but not good. Um, but certainly um, with the work we can now do in the microbiome, we're understanding that actually there are bugs that um, um, can utilize the protein to make butyrate. And so, um, you know, so it's not as simple as you need carbohydrate because you need the butyrate. Actually, the the the, the, the microbiome of the carnivore can actually utilise um, protein to make butyrate, and so we're seeing that there's a little bit of a shift from traditional um, butyrate um, fermentation pathways uh, from carbohydrate to butyrate fermentation pathways from amino acids. So that's quite an interesting finding uh, that we're sort of um, trying to tease out. And again, slight differences between cats, cats and dogs. Definitely a diet effect and potentially a, um, a species effect there too. Um, yes, yeah, so, and then the other thing that um, obviously uh, fermentation of proteins or amino acids or peptides um, are associated with your odorous compounds, as I mentioned earlier. Um, interestingly, we tend to think of well, we've tended we've tended to cluster indole kind of quite you know as a as a bad um, a bad molecule, but there are there is research that suggests that um, indole um, and not necessarily the indole derivatives um, can actually improve gut barrier function in in vitro models. So um, so it's potentially that indole isn't necessarily the bad molecule it's always assumed to be. Um, and there, there could be some nuances there. So that's sort of something that um, I'd like to sort of try and tease out in the future if I if I get the opportunity. Yeah. So so yeah. So more higher carbohydrate diets tend to have higher um, uh, carbohydrate substrates, and you get that rise in short chain fatty acids. But actually, might not be as dramatic. But you certainly see. Um, the um, the ability of the microbiome to create uh, produce butyrate from protein ingredients too. So, yeah, which might be another um, step change that the cat uses to maintain its its health and, and and metabolism in essence. Okay, so we've talked about the microbiome, we've talked about life stage, 
and um, and we've talked a little bit about the substrates that the microbiome is using. But let's now ladder to other parts of gut health because I think a lot of the pet food industry and and like you said, you know, we're making these broad sweeping um, uh, conclusions based on microbiome shifts. But there's other metrics of gut health um, that are uh, quite important to consider. And I know that uh, you and, and Dave Thomas are, are looking at some of these. So do you, do you want to describe some other gut health metrics that people may want to look at when they're looking at microbiome shifts and how they affect those other um, uh, outcomes of gut health? Yeah, sure. So, um, so if we take a step back into why we care about the microbiome in the first place, um, and we and, and and at the start of this um, podcast, we talked about the its role in the immune system and um, as part of a normal, healthy um, gut function. So, certainly, the microbiome um, or, or the gut. Um, it has its microbiome. It has its immune system, but it's also a physical barrier. Um, between uh, the inside of our bodies and the outside world, um, and kind of bringing in this this idea around um, at a certain age point, the the cat loses its ability to deal with the ex- excess nutrients, starts to put on weight, which is kind of what we've learned through this sort of aging um, study. We've sort of started thinking about why that might happen and why do we see these um, these shifts in macronutrient digestibility associated associated with age. And so we've started to look at um, intestinal permeability um, as a as a marker of gut gut health and gut function. It's pretty. Um, well, I won't say it's pretty easy. I don't think um, our PhD student would agree, but um, you know it's a relatively um, uh, low invasive procedure. It's uh, sugar probes. You dose the animal with those, and then you can measure them in urine or plasma, depending on um, um, what's easier to collect. Um, and you can, from those, you can understand um, whether you've got a leaky gut. Um, so whether your kind of your tight junctions are like this, and the the bad stuff can go through, or whether you've got a really nice solid um, intestinal wall. Um, so that's one aspect we're taking. Um, the other aspect, other aspect which um, we kind of we, we think about, but um, you know, if, if you're if you're happy with your dog's or cat's poo, um, and you're not, you know, it's it's good good consistency, it's good, um, you know, relatively good odor, it's always going to smell. Um, those sorts of things, you, you know, you can pick it up easily. Um, that's probably the best marker of, you know, your dog or cat's gut health, right? If things are coming, going in and they're coming out looking good and your, your dog's got a, um, you know, it's got a nice coat on it, same with your cat, um, you know, you could be reasonably assured that the diet that you're feeding is actually working well for your animal. Um, so, yeah, never underestimate the value of nice feces. Yeah. So, so on that, I, I couldn't agree more. There's so many places and jokes that you can go on this, and I certainly try to lay them down on undergrads, and they don't they don't laugh that much when I talk about poo. Um, but I know it's so disappointing. I do remind them that you cannot be a nutritionist unless you're cool with poo. And I'll make I'll make one caveat. I'm not okay with human poo. 
Yeah. Like, there's no way <laughs> I'm collecting human poo, but I, I don't have a problem with collecting animal poo. I, yeah. yeah. And I just wanted to point out that I think that horse poo actually smells quite amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm a fan of horse poo. Yep. Yeah. yeah great horse poo. But um, jokes aside, to your point about consistency, does that, is there a breadth though of healthy consistency? So, um, you know, if a animal has pretty consistent, but soft poos, is that healthy or not healthy in contrast to the dog beside them or the cat beside them who has slightly firmer poos that are easy to pick up? So where on the spectrum of poo consistency is healthy? Is there a range or is it really targeted? Um, so if we, so there is a there is a scale that we use to assess uh, fecal score or fecal health score. Um, I think it's the, the Waltham poo scale that we've used um, and they have a range. They range from uh, one to five where one is very liquid and five is very, very hard. <clears throat> so um, the healthy range in that in that um, scale is, is somewhere from like two and a half to kind of three and a half. Um, so the there's a there is a scale, and within the scale, there's a scale. So um, we know that there is quite a lot of uh, variation in how individual dogs and cats deal with um, with their with their diet. Um, you know, you would have um, over the years, and myself, and you know, pretty much anybody in, in, in pet nutrition would have dealt with the oh my cat gets runs on this diet. Um, struggled for years to try and um, to try and help there, and obviously that's where the the work of Texas Texas AMU is is really important. They're kind of understanding that kind of dis, dysbiosis and um, irritable bowel kind of thing is. Um, but I would say if your dog is um, soft but consistently soft, and you're happy with him, um, like uh, he's he's uh, got the right amount of energy, his coat is nice, he, he seems happy, um, then. It's perfectly fine. If your dog um, or cat is consistently at the firmer end of the scale, but you're happy with that, um, and there's no issues with um, straining or constipation, those sorts of things, then that's perfectly as fine as well. I think it's, um, yeah, we we do. There is a lot of individual variation between, um, you know cats and dogs in terms of how they re- react or respond to different diets. So, yeah, I think there is, um, yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned um, uh, some, some. So you mentioned as an example, gut permeability as a measure. Can you have outwardly, can you outwardly have a dog or cat that is asymptomatic if you used um, fecal score, but actually has increased gut permeability can you ask us that in six months time <laughs> i i will um, I, um i guess yeah. it's interesting because it one might precede the other one and i think to your point about 
how little we know yeah. when you're trying to piece this, these things together, you need that timeline to understand whether the chicken or the egg came yeah. first. Do, That's do you right, start yeah. to get microbiome shifts before you get gut perm shifts or do you get gut perm shifts that then underpin microbiome shifts? And then where's metabolism affected along this cascade? So, so we don't have those answers, but, but you and Dave are working hard to uh, provide uh, those to the industry. Yes, we are. Yes, yep. So I think I think any uh, fundamental knowledge that we can get um, around the aging process in terms of gut health and permeability, um, the microbiome, um, will yes, it will will basically it's it's part of the puzzle, right? Um, and certainly, you know, when we've got um, cats living upwards of sixteen. You know, 22, I think, is, uh, is some of the older ones I've heard of years of age. We want our cats to be um, healthy when they're that old, not kind of struggling, not scraggly. Um, we want them to be enjoying their life. And, um, yeah, so the more that we can understand around what's actually happening in that in that time frame um, and can we improve it with uh, dietary nutrients, um, then that's that's the long-term goal of, of this research. Of course, you know, you don't have all the answers straight away, but um, that's the goal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we want to increase health span, not yeah, health span, yeah. life Exactly, span. That's, that's it perfectly, yeah, yeah. There is a there is a focus on on lifespan and um, but actually it's the health that is associated with that that's really important and you know in our older animals um, the older you get the older they get um, the more they experience um, disease um, so things like chronic kidney disease in cats um, osteoarthritis those sorts of things there are um, gut links, microbiome links to those sorts of diseases too. So I suspect the more we understand what's what's happening in a in a healthy aging, sorry, an otherwise healthy aging animal, the more we'll be able to utilize that information to try and help with those um those real specific disease um disease states that we see in our aging animals. Yeah, I think a, a, a lot of um, definitely our pet owners and and uh, don't understand it as well. But I think most people don't understand that every mammal on the planet actually contains more other organisms in the form of bacteria than the actual cells that our own tissues possess and accumulate. So we have this in crazy symbiotic relationship. So the question is, when does that start to go to crap? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and lead and lead to deterioration and aging. So yeah. I think everybody's going to be really looking forward to that work. And not only will it impact um, pet nutrition, but it's going to drive um, curiosity in, in other yeah. um, animals, including humans who we, who we age with. Yes, exactly. So, so maybe um, to to bring it together on this, when we think about maintaining that healthy microbiome, and we know that we still have a lot more to learn, if you base it on what you know today, um, how would you advise companies to formulate 
the difference between adult maintenance formulations and let, let's juxtaposition it pretty far go with a super senior formula for both dogs and cats. How how might those look a little bit different? And 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 it, maybe it's not the composition. Maybe it's thinking about other things like probiotics and prebiotics and postbiotics and a combination of all three. Yeah. So um, interestingly, when you look at um, <clears throat> things like AFCO. Um, and uh, FEDIF, which is the European uh, Nutritional Regulation, um, there isn't any differentiation beyond pregnancy and uh, kitten or puppy and sort of adult. And adult is basically um, uh, typically anything from one year of age, both cats and dogs. Um so I think the first thing we need to do is really understand um, what our senior cats and dogs need in terms of um, specific nutrients. We know that their needs are different. We um, There is a, a, a lot of work, especially I think in the, the more veterinary um, side of things rather than say animal science around uh, older dogs needing more protein. Um, but that's not reflected in... Um, our regulatory guidelines, right? We know that um, if you supplement um, old cats uh, with various probiotics and um, prebiotics and, uh, you know, poof, a long chain omega 3 fatty acids, for example, they are healthier or they live, live a little bit longer. So we know that if, if those uh, nutrients have the ability to improve health span, then it suggests that um, there's actually a greater need for those those nutrients, right? So I think the first thing we need to do is really um, really understand. Um, so I think I think we can, with relative certainty, say it's uh, for the cat at around eight years of age. There's a shift that happens. So what are the nutrient needs post that? And then I would like to see the likes of our regulatory bodies go, we have a growing pregnancy lactation, we have a young adult, um, so one to seven, and then we have a senior recommendation. And then given we have cats living anywhere from, um, you know, 12 to 22 years of age, we probably need some work in that super, super senior space as well. So um, in terms of formulating... Uh, and form, formulating diets at the moment we're, we're limited because we our AFCO regulation is very broad um, and I don't think we understand the nutrient requirements of healthy adult cats as well as we should let alone what our, um, our more vulnerable um, uh, elderly populations of pets will need as well so um, <clears throat> given that's our limitation um, I think you know, from a, a formulation point of view, I think pet food companies should be looking at um, what work has been done in um, supplementation of of older animals, what sort of benefits they see, um, the use of um, uh, prebiotics. I'm a fan of prebiotics rather than probiotics at this stage. Um, that's a, another discussion. Um, you know, building up the, the the good bugs that are that are naturally present. Um, naturally and, uh, yeah, I think naturally is the right word, um, present in, in the carnival gut, um, yeah, to really understand what 
we should be putting in our diets for our senior animals. So I think, yeah, I, I guess in summary, there's there's a lot of work that, that needs to be done given our pets are living such long lives with us now. Um, and I think we have an obligation um, to do them better um, and get, get, get better data and get, the, get that data um, regulated or, you know, this is what we must be doing now. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't, um, and definitely I'm sure uh, all of our pet food industry listeners um, uh, have heard it from me time and time again. This really speaks to the industry coming together to support basic research that would not benefit any single company, but benefit all pets. That's right, yeah. And this is important because there is not, in a lot of, well, in most countries, there isn't remotely as much funding um, for pet if there is any at all um, in contrast to humans and agricultural animals so so just a plug for that i think um i think um the the contra to that is also um true and i've sort of alluded to this in the past where um the pet food industry used to lag behind the human industry you know it was five years or 10 years and it was five years you know in terms of health uh, nutrient trends or uh, ingredient trends um and then it was sort of 18 months and now it's almost instantaneous if a human is eating um, um, brown eggs it wants their their cat to be eating brown eggs too and the industry shifts to those demands without actually thinking is this the right thing for the animal and I think um, pardon? I couldn't agree more. So I I, I think that as a science community and as a um, pet food industry we should be saying, "Hey, let's let's look at the let, let's look at this better before we implement it." And the um, DCM debacle is case in point. We shifted, and there was a whole mess, um, which you know is sort of we, we're cra- we're crawling out of the weeds now. But yeah, I, th- I think in terms of humans imposing their desires on pet food. We should be saying, actually, your dog isn't designed to eat, um, I'll say blueberries because that's my favourite one to talk about. Um, they might actually be healthy, but that's not the point. Um, yeah, it's not designed to do that, so let's just look at some research first. Let's understand the consequences of feeding that rather than just including that because it's a trend. So I think that's um, probably the challenge for for us all going forward is actually yeah, kind of – asking pet owners just to let's get some research before we do this Um, yeah yeah Yeah. and then reminding the pet food industry too that if they're going to do a step change they need to put the research behind it before before they launch that because that's right afterwards that's right yes totally agree totally agree yeah couldn't agree more well, thank you for the science discussion today. But to end off, um, because I I personally find you quite a formidable female leader in the pet food industry. Oh wow! Um, yeah, you're pretty cool. Um, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind departing some um, advice on. Uh, especially young women in the pet food industry and maybe one thing that you would highly advise that they consider and one thing that you highly advise um, that they avoid. 
Okay, that's um, thank you for your glowing <laughs> um, uh, reference there. Um, so I think the thing I would advise is to take take every opportunity. Don't think you can't do it because you haven't done it or because you've only done maybe a little bit. Um, you know, back yourself and take the random opportunity. Um, have have the conversation. Um, you know, maybe with a, a, a startup who who is thinking about things in a different way. Um, never be afraid to say you don't know. Um, I think there's a lot of we try and <clears throat> um, bluff our way through things, but I think there's a lot of power in being honest. And um, and you know, we our our brains all work differently. If um if you need more time to reflect on something, then you know, then say that right. Don't don't be afraid not to speak up because you don't have the answer. Um, in terms of so those those would probably be the same things. Um, take take the opportunities, especially the random ones. Um, I think given now the importance of things like communication, um. In, in every industry, um, the ability to speak, you know, upwards to management or boards, downwards to um, maybe people in your organisation, sideways, um, communication papers or marketing papers. Uh, that's my biggest regret is I didn't sort of uh, delve into that more um, to understand, you know, what they're trying to achieve from their perspective. Um yeah, so I think that's probably what I would, uh, and, and what I do suggest to um, to PhD PhD students that I mentor is, you know, um, the more perspectives you can get on anything, the the better the question you can ask, and then asking questions is what's going to solve the um, solve the problem. So yeah, that's what I would um, would suggest <clears throat> recommend. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to say? one thing to avoid or do you want to avoid that question? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to say um, avoid putting yourself in a box. So as scientists, um, we tend to think of ourselves as scientists. So I'm a scientist and, um, and that's what I am. But actually what you are is a problem solver. You're a communicator. Uh, sometimes you're a contract writer, um, business development manager. Um, you know, you're a whole heap of things being being a scientist in, in the reality of, of the scientific world today. Um, you know, you're not just at the lab bench pipetting. Uh, you're problem solving. You're um, adapting. You're innovating. So... Um, Mine would be avoiding putting yourself in a box and sort of thinking um, thinking about the skills you have in that wider context. And that can be uncomfortable. Um, and so I would suggest to um, talk to somebody you, you respect, um, whose opinion you respect, and sort of if you're struggling to figure out what else, what it is you can bring to the table, talking to them. Um, and, and yeah, thinking about the... You're a time manager, you're a project manager, you know, you're all these things. You're not um, just a scientist. So that's what I would say. Yeah. And it's lifelong development, right? So they have to think. That's correct, that. yeah. Yeah. We're always learning. We're always learning. Yeah. 
Always learning. Absolutely. Well, with that, Emma, thank you so much for joining me today. And I look forward to talking to you again. Um, there's other topics that I yes. have plated for as well. Um, energy being one of, oh, we talk about that one forever. So stay tuned for that if you're a listener. And thank you, Emma, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And um, thanks, everybody, for listening. 